What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. And before we go to today's episode, I have an important announcement to make. As you know, Intelligence Squared is about letting you engage with the world's most brilliant minds to challenge your thinking on the biggest conversations of our time. Whether it's through our podcasts, debates or live streams, we believe that by presenting in a civil and respectful way both sides of the argument, we can expand people's perspectives. This is the only way to combat all that polarisation we're increasingly seeing in our world. To quote J.S. Mill, he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. If you believe in this mission, we think you should support us through Intelligence Squared Premium. Your support will directly help us to make even more amazing podcasts, debates and live streams, stage more great live events, take Intelligence Squared to fresh audiences to hear their perspectives so that we continue the work of expanding horizons and escaping echo chambers and your support will get you even closer to the world's most brilliant minds. By signing up, you'll get ad-free listening because I know some of you would prefer not to listen to those. One early episode per week, two bonus episodes per month, like our sit-down with Daniel Kahneman. I think we should be talking about how to make democracy work better than it does. The reason that I'm raising that question is that I can't think of a good answer. But I wish, perhaps, if Intelligence Squared arranged a debate, maybe there would be one. I would actually refuse the booking because I would say I'm a pessimist and I have no idea how to solve the problem. But perhaps there is an idea. And there are optimists around, so they should be heard. And if you sign up through Supercast, you'll also get a 25% discount on Intelligence Squared Plus, our exciting new streaming service where you can watch along or even join the conversation to ask your questions, a 15% discount and priority access to live events so that you won't miss out on tickets for those, and our new premium monthly newsletter, which includes event write-ups, commentary from other subscribers, and a curated list of the most impactful articles our team has been excited by in the past month. This is now available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And as a special thank you, you'll receive a 20% lifetime discount off the regular £4.99 a month or £49.99 a year if you sign up before August 31st. It takes less than 30 seconds to sign up, so go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thanks again for all your support. Now, on to today's show. 
Welcome to Intelligence Squared. On today's program, John McWhorter, the linguist, columnist and author, discusses the ideas surrounding his most recent book, Woke Racism. Our host for this discussion is the journalist Helen Lewis. Helen is staff writer for The Atlantic, author of the book Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in Eleven Fights, and she's also presenter of The Spark on BBC Radio 4. Over to you, Helen. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared event with John McWhorter. To anyone who's been following the debates over race in America, John needs a little introduction. An associate professor of linguistics at Columbia University and a New York Times columnist, McQuarter believes that black Americans are being harmed by a new form of anti-racism, mostly espoused by white elites, that is illiberal, illogical and at heart neo-racist. John is the author of more than 20 books and his new book is Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. Tonight's event is going to run for one hour. For the first 30 minutes or so, I'm going to be talking to John in conversation. And then for the second half, we're going to take your questions. You can start asking them now by clicking on the Ask Question button under the video screen and typing in your question. If you want your name to be mentioned, type that in the box too, and then press send. John, welcome. Your book's title, controversially, is Woke Racism, specifically that word woke. A lot of people on the left hate that word. Why did you use it and what does it describe for you? Well, what I mean by woke is something that has changed actually since even the beginning of my journey with that book. Woke, I take to mean somebody who is awakened to certain realities of how a political system works and particularly certain aspects of power differentials that one might want to fix. And so you are woke. However, over about the past three years, the term has come to be used as a slur because a certain kind of woke person has shall we say, created so much offense in certain quarters that woke people are being overgeneralized as a kind of scourge. So what I meant was unintentional racism from people who are enlightened about how society operates and would like to change things. I think now, two years after the title was composed, it comes off as nastier than I necessarily intended it. But for me, woke doesn't mean just left. It's now, in its current meaning, it's a particular kind of woke person who I'm taking to account. Do you think there is any word that people who follow that ideology would use to describe themselves? I think the safest word now is progressive. And no, I'm not answering, I'm not answering your question. I think that the people I'm writing about, to the extent that they would describe themselves, would call themselves simply progressive. I don't think that they think of themselves as particularly extreme. They don't realize that they've gone in a direction that isn't constructive for a lot of the very people who they're arguing in on the behalf of. But one of these things is that most of the people who are hyper-woke, as you might call it, to the point of going over a certain edge, aren't aware that they constitute a group and often are not specifically aware of what the underpinnings of their ideology are. They're not going to tell you, which is why I tried to analyze it in the book and tried to make some kind of sense out of it. What kind of percentage of Americans do you think subscribe to that ideology? I mean, I would sort of say, is it is it five percent? Is it back? There's a sort of metropolitan liberals in Britain is about eight percent of people, right? Obviously, disproportionately concentrated in journalism, academia, theatre, you know, publishing. But what? How popular are these views? Frankly, my impression. I haven't 
done an official study, but my impression is that within academia and the media in particular, because that's where most of this is wielded, it's probably about one in 20 people who firmly believe in this particular sense that battling power differentials should be at the very center of everything you do create and think. It's very few people who actually think that way. However, the rest of us are often under an impression that if someone like that makes a loud noise, it is the moral thing for us to pretend to agree with them. And so these people have outsized influence. They're not the majority. I don't think they're even 50%. It's the occasional kind of person. But we have a weird situation in our society where a combination of the racial reckoning of early 2020 and the nature of social media means that that kind of person can wield an outsized influence that I don't know if they intend. I don't think it's deliberate. I don't think of these people as devils or demons. But the nature of the situation is that if that kind of person calls you a white supremacist on Twitter, I would say that nine out of 10 people are so shaken by that possibility that they pretend to believe what these sorts of people believe. It's a passive kind of mechanism, but it's creating an awful lot of pain and it's leaving an awful lot of black American people behind. And I just thought that somebody needed to discuss it in explicit terms. And your other term for them is um, the elect, which I think was an alternate title for the book when you were writing parts of it on Substack, right? And and why pick that term? <laughs> That's the title of the book in my head. You know, woke racism was created by others and, you know, allowed by me, but the elect, and that's just not a good enough title. But the book for me is about a certain kind of person who feels that they have a greater insight, that they are seeing further than the rest of us, that they know what's good. And this is fundamentally benevolent, but I think that there's an extent to which a person like that feels chosen. And the religious analogy was deliberate, with the idea being that you're not going to convince this person that they're wrong, that there's something quite beyond logic and reason involved, because that's part of what many religions are, is that you have to have faith to a certain extent. And then there is a certain smugness, and there are all sorts of reasons a person can be smug. In this case, the sort of person who feels that power differentials have to be held front and center feels that... In that, they are more humane than the rest of us, that they are gooder than the rest of us. And so they, they, they are the elect. I'm, I wanted it to have a certain religious resonance. I wanted to very slightly indicate the smugness. And I want to show that it's also it's a small group. We don't think of the elect as being everybody. It's a small group of people with outsized influence. I mean, I've been thinking of it in these terms myself for a while for a couple of different reasons. And one is that I think it's got some of the positive aspects of religion too, right? The sense of community, um, the sense of being together with like-minded people, and the sense of dedicating your life to a higher purpose. Now, that might be, you know, if oh, you're yeah. a Mormon, going and knocking on doors and making sure you spread the good word. And in the case mm -hmm. of these people, it's it's eliminating what they see as social evils. But the other way that I tend to think of it is as a form of left in this case, left-wing authoritarianism. And we're quite familiar with right-wing authoritarianism. But when I interviewed the political scientist Karen Stenner, she said that the hallmarks of people who have what she calls the authoritarian predisposition is a propensity for oneness and sameness. They want everybody to be the same and act the same. And you see that in, in what we think of as now as fascism, with just the idea that everybody has to be exactly the same and there is only one political party in charge. But then I kind of feel that Actually, a lot of these people would be quite happy if there were only one political party in charge, right? As long as it was their political party. Is that a way that you've found yourself thinking of it? Well, you know, that's really rich because I think the analogy strains a bit when you notice that 
fascism's schematic involves people marching in step and wearing the same color. Whereas among the elect, there's also this countervailing cherishing of diversity and difference. And so, you know, black people are different from white people, are different from Asian people, etc. And so certainly they would think that one party should run everything. Yes, they, they, there would be no doubt in their mind about that. But in terms of everyone having to be the same, I think their authoritarian mindset comes from an idea that they are morally correct in a way that brooks no controversy. But they're not authoritarian in the sense of saying, all of you do this the same way. They have a mission. What they want to do is, well, what they want to do is absolve themselves of the guilt of being white people who are oppressors. Or there's a whole black side of this, why we black people tend to allow ourselves to be treated this way by the white kind of elect person. But there's something, there's something to it. Certainly, this is the way I think, this isn't your question, but it's the way a lot of people feel that these elect are authoritarian, that they stand, you know, with miters on their head telling us what, what has to happen. And they don't seem to understand that anybody could possibly think in any other way. That feels to many people like you're being forced to do something by someone mean. The people in question have no idea that you would process it that way. Or if they do, they figure that's the way people are going to have to feel because we are on the side of the angels. We are helping black people. We are helping people of color. We are undoing intersectionality, etc. But the thing is, no matter how benevolent these people fundamentally are, no matter how deaf they are to how it feels to be on the other end of their abuse, we have to start standing up to them. Because otherwise, with social media being the way it is, they get their way. And I say this as an academic, watching various fields falling to pieces, including sometimes I fear my own, just because of this feedback loop that ends up creating so much mendacity and also just a lot of nastiness and, and pain. Can you tell us the story of this is um, towards the end of your book about the, the poor guy who was teaching Chinese and, and, and using Chinese filler words and a group of students complained about that? Because that's, I think... It's very difficult with situations like these when I write about them that quite often you can see you can see that a great deal of sympathy for people who might be offended. But I think that was the one where I finally went, as you do in the book, oh, come, come on, come on. No, come mm -hmm. on. Yeah, that was unfortunate. And, you know, he wasn't even teaching Chinese. It was he's a, a professor of communications. I've never really understood what that was, but he's teaching communications and he's talking about how in Chinese there are filler words. And one of them happens to sound like the N word. And a group of black students, frankly, pretended to be hurt by this and were taken seriously. And that teacher was suspended from the class. And that is Clearly absurd. Racism exists, certainly, and there will be shifting mores in terms of what words you use and when. But for nega in Mandarin to be processed as a slur was perfectly absurd. And yet, to the extent that anybody said, I feel your pain, yes, this professor is going to be suspended and subject to sensitivity training, all of that was fake. It was people giving in to a way of pretending to look at things because they don't want to be called racists on Twitter or the university doesn't want to be called a racist on Twitter. And the thing is, that wasn't a unique circumstance. The reason that I wrote Woke Racism was that summer in 2020 thinking, wait a minute, why is this sort of thing happening every three or four days? Why am I getting all of these reports? Whereas these things were happening before, but not in such numbers. Something really went crazy. And then I thought to myself, the thing is, no one's crazy. This is not crazy. But why has this happened after George Floyd? And I thought, wait a minute. It's Floyd. 
It's that we're stuck inside and we want, in particular, we want an excuse to go outside and or to bond with people. And then I thought it's fear. Those students, I hate to say this about these these black students who I'm sure have as many problems as I do, but they were faking it. They were lying. No cognitively normal person is hurt by that. And yet in numbers, those students pretended to be hurt and were attended to. That can't continue. And frankly, yes, the person who complains about it has to be, I think, in a whole book, black and neither young nor old. I, I wrote this book thinking, talk about elect. I thought, you know what? There needs to be a readable book about this. And I think only I can write it because there are only so many, you know, black American, if you want to call it public intellectuals, who want to write from that perspective, who, who are strange like me, one of these heterodox contrarians. So this is a small set. And I thought some of them are 25. And so it's going to be said that they're too young. Some of them are 70. And it's going to be said that they're from another time. And I thought one of them is in his 50s. It's me. And so I wrote Woke Racism so that people would not be able to say. There are all sorts of things you can say to me, but you can't say that I'm not old enough to know how life works or that I grew up in 1850. It's, it's in between. But it was time to call out students like that. And frankly, more in my belly is calling out white people who pretend to agree with things like that. I really struggle with that because I'm, I don't know if you listened to Barry Weiss's podcast, honestly, but she had a Camille Foster, who's a young black man, interviewed Amy Cooper, the so-called uh, Central Park Karen. And he told a rather mm -hmm. more complicated story about that incident, which I think happened either the day before or the same day as the George Floyd story broke. And so she became yeah. a kind of avatar for, you know, white women and uh, lynching was kind of invoked. And and, and I, I know, I know, because I write about feminism and I talk to lots of other people, that there were lots of women who said, well, you know, what, actually, if I was walking alone and some guy threatened my dog, you know, and what am I supposed to do in that situation? Am I really supposed to just, you know, not make a fuss about it because people might, you know, assume I was racist? And I think you can argue about whether or not she was, but there was absolutely, I, I, there was an absolute sense that if you were the person who came out and said that, you would be ripped to shreds. And I find mm -hmm. that makes me quite uncomfortable. I think it, it affects me certainly as a woman writer thinking, well, sometimes there are things I need to say. I wrote a piece about saying my believe women was a, a, a bad slogan because no man can write that piece. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and, and I find that, I, you know, and I, I, I struggle to reconcile. I don't know if you do with the fact that actually I'm quite happy that men aren't writing too many pieces about feminism um, because they write <laughs> enough pieces about everything else. But no, but also that actually there are some things that, you know, having that lifetime of experience does give you a, a more deep perspective on it. But having got to this stage where everybody has to write in their silos, I find very, very uncomfortable. I wanted to talk to you a bit about the practical effects of this ideology, because if this were people believing some nutty things, that would be, you know, one thing. But this has become linked to another word that people on the left find very upsetting, phrase that they find upsetting, which is cancel culture and the idea that people get driven out of jobs. Now, the one rejoinder to that that you hear more than anything else is that this is people like you and me, complaining because we're getting some criticism on the internet. But you've written before about the sheer number of people who write to you in fear, right? The people are genuinely mm -hmm. normal, everyday people are frightened by this kind of culture. Tell, tell me a bit mm -hmm. more about that. Yeah. One of the oddest things in 2020 was, for example, the Harper's letter that I signed with a great many other people. And the response from, frankly, the elect that that letter was people like me upset at not being allowed to say the things that we want to say and feeling canceled. And I thought, wait, wait, 
I don't feel remotely canceled. I'm fortunate. I can say what I want to say and and be heard. Nobody's canceling me. I was writing on behalf of other people. And yes, those people very much exist. I do hear from them literally almost every day. Several people a week write to me in quivering fear of saying the wrong thing or people who realize what I frankly think of as real progressivism and cannot express it in their jobs because they would be either they would either find themselves unemployed or they would be so shunned that they might as well be unemployed. And this is rife in academia and the media right now. And I think some people say, and I understand what they mean, sort of, they say, you're just, you know, these are just anecdotes. You're hearing from a few people. And for one thing, it's not a few people. At this point, it's getting to be almost a thousand. But if I even had 16 testimonials like that from young black men who had been harmed by the police, that would be considered a statement about race in the entire United States of America. Nobody would question it. Nobody would require any kind of scholar survey. So what I've experienced, and also with my sparring partner, Glenn Lowry, getting every bit as much as I do, is that there's something going on. And by June 2020, when I had the inspiration for this book, part of what the inspiration was, was hearing from all of these poor assistant and sometimes associate professors, even ones with tenure, and just thinking something's really wrong. And it's different than it was in 2015. So in 2015, the big argument was what's going on on college campuses among students and the snowflakes, et cetera, et cetera. I always thought that was a little bit overblown, although I did write about it. Something was different by 2020, and that's what I started being afraid of. But yeah, the issue is not that, quote unquote, old white people like me. I love how I get put into that group, but old white men don't want to be canceled. It's not me. It's other people. And I'm quite clear now that the elect think all the responses to the Harper's letter, I could see all these writers, young writers, actually think that it's proper that somebody should be chased out of their job if they use certain words wrong or if they express a view that isn't quite consonant with the elect idea of centering power differentials. They think that's perfectly normal, and they're appalled that anybody would complain about it. That's the problem. The Overton window has moved. I think a lot of people, especially under 35, don't quite get that because they weren't around when things were different in the 90s. But the Overton window has moved. And not in a useful way, I personally think. But I also feel that some of that is a function of the fact that these are prestigious but not very well paid jobs, very precarious in their young versions. So if you look at publishing, mm-hmm. if you look at journalism, if you look at academia, there are some people at the top, you know, the head of Harvard, I imagine, is on a pretty hefty whack, but there will be ranks of, as you say, associate professors and te- classroom teaching assistants in very poor, scraping along circumstances, you know, not really this comfortable middle class life that their parents had, perhaps, that they would learn to expect. And I wonder how much of this anxiousness is about the fact that America is very bad about talking about class and the, you know, the fundamentals of a comfortable life. And it gets subverted into, like, as you mentioned there about police racism. When I was writing a piece about that, I, you know, I, was, I said, well, I don't think our police are in, you know, you can't really argue that Britain's police are shining models of anti-racism. What they don't have is routinely they're not armed and the people that they're not chasing aren't armed. And that mm-hmm. fundamentally means that if they make a mistake, there aren't guns involved nearly half so often. And so mm-hmm. something like six people were killed by police in Britain last year, right? It's just completely non-comparable to America in any sense. But because America can't have that argument, it has to have the other argument. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I yeah, I just, I, I'm really interested in the fact that you're a linguistics professor. Um, it's one of your, oh, you're a professor of Slavic, sorry, but you know, this is your, <laughs> this is your right. area of interest. Why have so many of these languages, uh, these battles become about language? So there's, for example, last year, the big argument about whether or not we should capitalize black, should we say people of color or should we say BIPOC? 
should we say defund the police when it turns out that actually when you question anyone, they mean demilitarize the police? You know, why do, why is everything happening on the level of language? Well, there's the sophisticated answer and then there is the sloppy answer. And I'm inclined to go with the sloppy one more. But the sophisticated answer is that elect philosophy traces to ideas among French intellectuals of, say, the deconstructionist movement and maybe toss in a little bit of Michel Foucault. And if you go from there into today's critical race theory ideas, there's an idea that language shapes or even is reality and that its intersection with the notion of truth means that you control language and therefore think that you're changing the world. I think that looks better on paper than as something that motivates actual people walking around getting people fired for using terms like reverse racism. I think, frankly, this is supposed to be about making the world better, but it's hard to make the world better when the really big work is already done. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 did a lot of the heavy lifting right there. And so the question is, what does the struggle consist of now? People will disagree. A lot of it is rather abstract and a lot of it is slow and therefore not very fulfilling. And so if you're disinclined or you don't know how to go out into the world and change things and you don't understand that it's easier to think things happen slowly. It's easier to think things don't happen than to understand they happen slowly. Then jumping on people because of something that they said, there's a recreational thrill to it. It lends itself to the nature of social media because it's based on words and writing. And there's an extent to which people may believe that how you say it represents how you're thinking. A lot of people don't realize that if you tell people they can't say something, one, they're going to keep thinking what they were thinking. And if anything, they're going to think about it more. They're just going to come up with different words for it. So yeah, there is a focus on language, partly maybe because of Derrida and Paul Deman, but partly because it's easy. And I think that a lot of the reason that it really jumped a couple of years ago is because everybody was home on their laptops. Easy to be, you know, to be that concerned about language when you sit reading it all day. But it's, um, it's idle. All of these new terms and you know, the tone in which they're used, it's idle. Changing the world is about going out into the world and doing things. You talk about Mormons and knocking on doors. It's not about telling people that now we call ourselves BIPOCs. While various buys and pox and everything are complaining that they feel misrepresented by the word anyway, none of that. What people, I think, miss, and it's because they're not obsessed with the past the way I am, and that's a bad thing about me that I look back too much, but a lot of people don't consider how absurd this, this interest in language alone would be to say Martin Luther King or to Rustin or somebody I always think of the brilliant Lorraine Hansberry, the playwright, Raisin in the Sun. She was very much a civil rights person and very much a person of words. And I, I like her. I've, I've studied her a lot. She would be appalled at this obsession with terms like Latinx, et cetera. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but what about going out into the world and trying to change it? That's what we're supposed to be doing. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. 
I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. I felt that very strongly while writing a book on feminism that you talk in the book about this being third wave anti-racism so the first wave being Jim Crow and segregation and the second wave being around the civil rights act right and then this is now the mm-hmm. third iteration and feminism has a similar model the first wave being you know the suffragettes and suffragists second wave being the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s and access to abortion the contraceptive pill and the removal of the last laws specifically about sex discrimination so there was a thing that bound together all women in Britain until 1975, which was that you could be denied job for being a woman. And very mm. similar things in the States. But since that happened, and now it's now 50 years ago, what, what, what it means to be discriminated as a woman has become much more fluid, much more amorphous. It's much more about intersecting with class, like the thing, different things will affect you whether you've been to university or not, whether or not you've got children or not, whether or not you've got elderly parents, all of that stuff. And there is, I think, a sort of sense of despair at how complicated that's got. And I wonder if that's something that you feel in the way that you've been writing about race is that there's an almost a weird kind of nostalgia for when it was white slave owners and black slaves, because at least you understood who was in charge and you didn't have to deal with these levels of complexity. Yeah, it's um, a major problem. You talk about black freedom. It's been a problem since about 1969. Black people need their freedom. Well, okay, but that's the way it was put then after the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, and the lesser known Fair Housing Act of 1968, which outlawed redlining black people into poor neighborhoods. All that had happened, and yet there was still this furious idea we have to get our freedom. And the question was what? And you start to see ever vaguer notions of what black power is as we move into the 1970s and we get through them. And yeah, there's a frustration there because what needs to happen? And a certain kind of academic, a certain kind of journalist hopes that what's going to happen is this profound psychosocial revolution that we're going to just turn over the entire world order. And there is room for that kind of radical idea of how things should go. We should hear from people like that. But that will always be, particularly in this country, very much a minority opinion. The problem is that there's often been a sense that on black issues only, that radical fist in the air, blow it all up and start again view is somehow default. We talk a lot about how black Americans are actually socially a rather conservative people. Yet the idea is supposed to be that despite that social conservatism, we're supposed to be ready for everything to be blown up so we can start again. And frankly, that's not going to happen. And you mentioned class. We don't do class here. And it further muddies the discussion because frankly, for example, the cops, we do have a problem with the cops and cop murders is a class issue. What brings you into contact with the cops to be killed is poverty. And the statistics on the disproportion of black men who are killed, you know, black black men are killed disproportionately to our numbers in the population. And it is exactly the disproportion to which we are poorer. It's not an accident. And yet we can't talk about that. I often say with if I'm talking across the ocean, the sitcom Keeping Up Appearances 
would never be done in an American version. You know, we've had we've had Are You Being Served? You know, we've had Steptoe and Son. There's a reason they never tried keeping up appearances because the jokes simply would not translate. We pretend class doesn't exist. And so we have a conversation about race that tends to pretend, for example, that a life like mine, look at my life. You were seeing precisely my life and I've grown up in this bookish upper middle class life. I don't really exist. Instead, all black people, except a very few who are called disconnected from the community, live poor and are constantly being chased by the cops. That's the schematic fiction. Because we don't talk about class issues. We're in a way afraid to because of what you've heard, I've heard people say it would bring in too many white people, say, to talk about affirmative action, which is about to blow up here again. We don't want to talk about class because that would benefit too many white people. This is supposed to be for black people and black uplift. That's not very constructive, especially as we're a much more racially mixed country than we were until 1965. So yeah, we have... Um, a major slip between the way we talk about these things and the reality and what's actually needed, including how to help people who need help. There are a disproportionate number of black people who need help, but we're not getting them the help. Instead, we're engaging in a kind of charismatic kabuki, which is vastly encouraged by the nature of and the addictiveness of social media. A lot of this is Twitter. A lot of this starts in 2009. And we're stuck with Twitter. And, you know, I like it too, but we're stuck with it. I do often think that many of my problems would be solved if someone would just, you know, burn Twitter to the ground and sow its fields with salt. <laughs> because I think, it, I think it does exactly what you're talking about, yeah. which is that it gives those people the illusion of being in the majority. The, the phrase that I often think about when, when this comes up is the heckler's veto. Because suddenly, if you're the one person who's objecting to something, everybody has to stop and listen to you. Even if you're, even if 99 people out of 100 are absolutely fine with it, that we always have to go at the speed of the slowest, most easily offended person in the class. But you mentioned mm -hmm. affirmative action there, and this is something you've been quite outspoken on. I was surprised when California had a ballot measure about affirmative action, a very blue state, and it rejected bringing it back by 57% to 43%. That's now going up in front of um, a, a different case about affirmative action is now going up in front of the Supreme Court. Tell me a bit about your, your views on that. Well, it's it's really pretty simple. I am in favor of affirmative action when it's about disadvantage. Now, 50 years ago, such a disproportion of black people were poor that it made a shorthand sense to think of blackness as essentially a kind of disadvantage and to institute affirmative action to give people a hand up in what was still a you know, ruthlessly segregated and bigoted America. The thing is, when you are giving I won't call it handouts, but that boost, when you're frankly changing standards for a group of people, there are always going to be people who don't like it. There are always going to be people who feel like they should have standards changed. There are always going to be poor white people who wonder why they can't have it. After the Immigration Act of 1965, all sorts of poor people from all over the world come in and some of them are going to wonder, why don't we get that too? So that kind of policy should be seen as chemotherapy. It should be something that you do for as little time as possible. I would say that kind of affirmative action, which started roughly in 1966, should have continued for call it a generation. Like nobody asked me, but around 1990, the idea should have been there are enough black middle class people now that we're going to eliminate this as a black aimed policy. And it should be about disadvantage. I think that we should definitely change standards for people who came up hard. But that means it's the coal miner's daughter, as well as the guy who grew up in a, you know, in a in a bad building in Bedford Stuyvesant in Brooklyn. And that's considered a very radical way of looking at it. 
And it shouldn't be. It really is based on a concern with people who need help. Affirmative action aimed at disadvantage would still help a disproportionate number of black people. But it shouldn't be about, for example, my daughters. You know, my daughters are seven and ten. I can just imagine that when they apply to college, it maybe this will finally have changed by then. But at this point, if they applied to college, the idea would be that they're they should not have to have grades or test scores as high as other people's because they would lend their diversity to a mostly white school and they would be showing people what brown people are like. And that's so valuable to an education that they, in all of their diversity, I mean, here they are growing up in all of this diverseness from whiteness, they should you know, have their standards lowered. That's a, That policy makes no sense anymore. And there's a certain there's a certain resonance to using the word diversity in this country and what it's supposed to mean. If you're not in favor of diversity, you're a racist and nobody wants to be called a racist. But yeah, affirmative action's great. It should address disadvantage. 50 years ago, black to be black was to be disadvantaged even if you did have a certain amount of money. Luckily, and a lar- to a large extent because of affirmative action, that has changed. And yet there's a certain kind of person who will insist that standards need to be lowered for black and Latino people until there is perfect equity until black people are represented to the extent of our population in every endeavor in the country. I don't believe that that's how things work. I don't think it's necessary. So, yeah, I am going to be in favor of an affirmative action that's based on disadvantage rather than affirmative action based on having a certain number of black people in every entering class or having a certain number of black people in every position. And in that, I will be considered a contrarian. I'll be considered somebody who's pulling in the ladder after me, et cetera, et cetera. No, I think my views would have been perfectly consonant with what civil rights leaders in 1960 thought. People were drinking martinis and they had cat eye glasses and they were watching, you know, Dick Van Dyke show on TV and they would have completely understood where I was coming from. It's this black radicalism as default that came in in about 1969 that makes it so that I become a right-wing Republican conservative in saying what I just said. It's interesting. You mentioned the book Ta-Nehisi Coates, who wrote for The Atlantic and wrote a lot of the very powerful and influential pieces about race, particularly his case for reparations. But I remember he had a discussion with a, a white liberal after it when about reparations in which the white guy said something which was, what about just doing universal measures that because of class and generational wealth end up disproportionately benefiting black Americans more. And that has been a model that that Britain has done. For example, we have, you know, free school meals for people who are disadvantaged. And then there are particular programs for people who have been on free school meals. And those people are disproportionately from ethnic minorities, but it is not, it doesn't have the backlash effect that I think you get, which we've seen in COVID, right? The idea that New York was preferentially treating minority Americans with with drugs and as a risk factor becomes immediate fodder for the culture war for, for Fox News. One thing mm-hmm. before we go to questions, I want to ask you back, because I'm not sure I've heard you talk about this before. Um, I was listening to Blockchain Reported, a very fun podcast with uh, Katie Herzog and Jesse Single, interview Mike Pesco, who was one of these people who got ousted from Slate for discussing whether or not it was ever possible to say the N-word. And he didn't say it, he just asked in the work slack about this. And one of the things that struck me is they were joking. And I wonder how much of this is about a discomfort with playfulness and humour, and particularly something that isn't very American, I think, which is sarcasm. Do you feel that some of this is about people not liking that that tone, that flippancy sometimes, the idea that you aren't taking things seriously, that you're dismissing people. Mm-hmm. You mean me personally or in general? But yeah, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i also talking about me because I think one of the things <laughs> that I, when I get backlash from my articles, it's because you haven't yeah. written in these tones of sort of 
now we're all at Sunday service and we have to talk about this problem really seriously. It's the idea that sometimes, and you talk about it in the book, right, that sometimes people will relay instance of racism, not as a great scar, yeah. but as a like, geez, that guy, like, what is, you know, what was that kind of about? And I feel that that discomfort with that tone is something that I see in, in this discourse a lot. You know, that's, that's a real can of worms. And I should say that um, I haven't said this publicly much until now, and I'm going to start. But what happened to Mike was egregious. And the reason that I took my podcast, Lexicon Valley, from Slate to Substack was because of that directly. I thought to myself, I don't want to work for a company that would do this to this man. And also, I'm next. I frankly had said similar things, and I figured the only thing protecting me is that I'm black. But if I don't say it in the right way, pretty soon I'm going to be the one who's considered to make the place unsafe. I was I was chilled. It was like watching a cat being killed. And so, yeah, I, I didn't like it. However, what you're saying about um, tone is something I've wanted to do a piece on or maybe even a book because one aspect of electism is what I think is a willful numbness to the layers of wit. And I find it interesting. Sometimes I think, do they really not get the joke? And is it really that they just don't understand humor? But that to me is is, is lazy. That's like calling everybody crazy. You know, these are cognitively normal people. Why are they pretending not to understand how humor works? That if you're making fun of a racist, that's part of being an anti-racist, not platforming the racist. Why suddenly do you not think the office and parks and recreation are funny? It, why that act? And I find it interesting because it's not that these people are malevolent. But I don't think that it's suddenly that they don't understand that there are layers of reality and that part of being a cognitively normal human is to be always sensitive to other people's frame of mind and to various layers of attitude. It's interesting to see the humorlessness. For a lot of people like this, it seems to me, is one of about a hundred things that scares me about an elect world. The only thing that's funny is making fun of straight white men. That's funny. And you can be very witty about that. Suddenly, these people all of a sudden then are John Cleese. But if it's anything other than that, nothing's funny. And I don't want to be, for example, the guy during second wave feminism who keeps on saying, why isn't it funny? You know, the, the stereotype in America at least used to be that the woman says, that's not funny. And the guy didn't like it. I, I don't want to be that person because, yeah, some things aren't funny anymore. But then again, there is a willful witlessness about this movement that reminds me of something out of Orwell. And it interests me. It's, it, it depresses me to watch people pretend not to have a sense of humor. And frankly, it's a kind of willful unintelligence. If you don't understand layers, the layers of perception that underlie what irony and wit are, you're pretending to not be very bright. And boy, you must really wish for something important to lower your intelligence level in this way and tell the rest of us that we should. And what that important thing is to people like this is battling power differentials wielded by white people. That is what's important. And that's why the only thing that's funny is the straight white guy and his cluelessness. But that's not a world I want to live in. 
it's it's anti-human. I think the thing about that is that so often I think, and you see this on Twitter, is that that involves constructing a, a sort of straw man to be angry with, right? Constructing a a white guy particularly, and actually white women get it a lot too through the Karen archetype, right? That as if Karen, as if yeah. completely clueless, like out of touch, and 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 complete, and I and I and often it involves just reading things in the most ungenerous possible way in order to have the opponent that most flatters you and makes your case look good. And, mm-hmm. and so, which I think is one of the things that, that social media has really has fed into this. I must go to questions because we have a lot. Um, <laughs> let's do these fairly rapid. Don't all ideologies have an element of religious fervor to them? What makes anti-racism different? Um, I'll, I'll be brisk. Um, anti-racism in its current form, I find the religious label heuristically useful, mostly because there's a fine line and you could, you know, push me into a corner and convince me that what this really is, is an ideology and not a religion. I'd resist, but I understand the case. But we have to understand that there's an extent to which the elect person, especially on issues of power and especially on issues of race, cannot be reached by rational discussion. There's no such thing as having a conversation with them about meeting in the middle or changing their view or understanding that there's a marketplace of ideas. It is as futile as trying to convince a very religious person out of their religious beliefs. And I want that analogy to be clear because I think we waste time and let black people sit unassisted if we think that that kind of person can be reached with a dialogue. Unfortunately, with those people, and I've known them for 25 years, which is why I say this with such obnoxious confidence, people like that on these subjects cannot be reasoned with. The idea is to either work around them or to stand up to them. You cannot change them. Jeanette has a uh, question, which is, you come from a fairly privileged middle-class background. What entitles you to speak for people of color everywhere? I can speak for black people everywhere because I did have a very upper middle class existence. But like any black person who grew up in America in the 50s and 60s, I had many relatives who were much less fortunate than me. And my mother taught social work and taught me lessons about how most black people live, including driving me the long way to school through depressed black neighborhoods so I could see what real life was for people who weren't like us. And I'm very interested in helping black people who need help. And if I talk about how other black people feel, it's because I talk to other black people. I've been a black people all my life. I read about what black people feel. And I try very hard to do good in this world for black people who need help. But no, the idea that because I grew up like this, I shouldn't speak. And apparently that this makes me an old white man. I reject that view. Sorry. I'm authentically black, just like others. I am. Um, I remember looking at the the polling when um, actually it was over the first Dave Chappelle outrage, not the second Dave Chappelle outrage, which was about you know whether or not his show should be cancelled. And it was really fascinating to look at the polling about th- these attitudes. And as you mentioned earlier, the fact that the average kind of black primary voter for the Democrats they wanted. Joe Biden, right? They didn't want Bernie Sanders. They didn't want Elizabeth Warren. They didn't want like radicalism. It, this is actually really a phenomenon of white college educated bi-coastal people, right? It is, it oh, is not a very black phenomenon. So. Yeah. I think very quickly, I think it's very easy to miss this. It's, I, I know how counterintuitive this is to many. The view that you get from, I'm going to pick somebody at random, ta Coates on how race works. It will look like that's the way pretty much all black people think, especially because I haven't heard him say it, but people in his position often imply that their views are the black view. But that's simply not true. For example, at my family gatherings, I'm always pleased to see that views like mine are shared by, you know, maybe half of the people there. It's all considered quite ordinary. There's nothing that weird about my views. It's just that we tend to hear most from the writerly people 
that's only a small segment of what black America is. Yeah. Let me ask you the, the other thing that I, I love this line in the book, which is I make no apologies for not being a character in The Wire. Um, <laughs> and which I thought was very funny. But that is the other charge that you get that you are selling this book to people who want to be relieved of their guilt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that. And the truth is, no. And I know that partly because it's not social media as much as email. You hear from lots and lots and lots and lots of people when you write a book these days. And for one thing, I hear from a lot more black people than many people might think. But I have yet to hear from a white person who gives any indication of feeling absolved. What people write to me and say is they want to do something, they want to help, they always have, but they've been confused lately by the kind of person who's beating them about the head and telling them that they're part of the problem because they're not hard, radical leftists talking about intersectionality. So yeah, not a, the whole thing about a character from a wire, the point there was also that based on this elect ideology, all black people are treated the same way. So I'm supposed to have this beef that despite my you know, upper middle class existence that supposedly I'm discriminated against with microaggressions every time I leave my house, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm saying, no, that simply is not true. And so the idea that you have to be a character from the wire to speak for black people doesn't work partly because supposedly all of us are undergoing the same kind of oppression. And I'm here to say that you're getting a very distorted view of how those things work. Yeah. That does still feel like quite a radical thing to say. Um, the idea that you, I, one of the things I think I struggle with about progressivism, and I definitely see myself as a progressive, is the idea that you're never allowed to acknowledge that previous progress has happened, right? That things, mm -hmm. you know, one of the nice things about writing a history of feminism was writing, thank God for all these campaigners who did this stuff so that now I can vote, that now I can go to university, I can do that. And the history of, of black America is the same. Thank God for Martin Luther King that he lived and existed. But there seems to be a feeling that if you say that you're in some way, I don't know what it, what exactly it is. You're somehow being complacent, but I don't think it is. I think it's honouring previous generations. Um, let's yeah. talk about critical race theory because we have to. Um, it's, I believe, oh, the no. law. Um, <laughs> so this is the other criticism, I think, and I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase a question because it was something I wanted to ask you about as well. Is I And something I struggle with in my writing is at the time when half the Republican Party thinks that the election was stolen from them and mad people in horns are invading the Capitol building, you know, why write about this? Why not? Why mm -hmm. not the other side? Well, you know, Tucker Carlson's off to, you know, give a hand job to Victor Orban next week, right? In, you know. <laughs> There are parts of the American right that are flirting with illiberalism beyond, you know, contemplation. Why write about this? That is my next piece in the New York Times. And the answer to it is that there are problems on both sides. And I completely understand that. However, the idea that it isn't deeply alarming what's going on from the left comes, I think, sometimes from people who frankly, are elect and don't quite understand that they're part of it and see it as normal when really it's abnormal. Or there is a, there is an American, I, I hate to put it this way, but maybe anti-intellectualism that's been written about by people smarter than me. But someone like me is saying our whole intellectual, artistic, and moral culture is being transformed by an illiberal, intolerant, and frankly, unintelligent ideology. And the answer to that question is that's not that important because of T Tucker Carlson and what happened on the steps of the Capitol in January. I don't think – I cannot imagine that question coming up in France, for example. But I don't deny what's going on on the right. But I really thought that what's going on on the left is so grievously important that it needs to be identified 
and written about. And I don't think that what's going on on the right is more important. I think both of these things are happening and none of us can write about everything. Tell me more. So CRT, critical race theory, is another, I I would say it functions both as a kind of boo word for, you know, just uh, teaching anything about race, but also about the stuff you talk about in your book about the fact that, you know, you would, George Washington is now sort of struck from the record because he was a slave owner and you can't talk about his achievements. Where do you see that battle going? Because I I thought it was really interesting that David French, a conservative, wrote a New York op-ed, Times op-ed with, you know, a a progressive and a centrist, all of them saying that this interference in curriculums is really really worrying. Where do you, yeah. where, for, from somebody outside, that whole battle just seemed like an enormous nest of vipers and I can't pick any one individual viper out of it. Give me your take on it. I think people are not always aware that there is a certain political view that is taught to people who are being trained as teachers. And the idea is that your most important job as a teacher is to instruct people in a radical leftist ideology. Well, you know, let's not call it radical leftist, social justice, that kind of commitment. And that is something that happens in education schools, and it does infect curriculums across the country. I don't think most people are in a position to necessarily know that. And so we have the most confusing discussion where supposedly we're saying that obscure, dense legal papers written decades ago are being taught to fifth graders, which is certainly not the case. It's critical race theory infused ideas. Then, of course, there is a kind of person who wishes that race and racism weren't taught in schools at all. I don't think that's the heart of the people who are worried about what's going, what's being taught. CRT in schools, when somebody like me complains about it, is white kids being taught that they're potential oppressors, black kids being taught that they are potentially oppressed, and that the grand theme of all areas of knowledge is power differentials in the way that they're abused. To me, that's not an education. And that very much is happening in many schools, both public and private. It's just that it's easy not to know. Who's your most eloquent critic? Who's the person that when you read them, you most often go, oh, you know what? Maybe he or she has a point. Huh. Because you're pretty brutal in that. Like, there's some, there's some excellent drive-bys in this book. Uh, Ibram X. Kendi gets a drive-by. Robin DiAngelo gets several drive-bys. Tanahisi Coates gets... Yeah. So you're, you're engaged with these people. But of, of the people on the other side, because this is one of the things I had. I was writing my book about feminism, and I was writing about some of these more outre views. And one of my friends who read The Proof said to me, you can't argue with sparkle horse 99 on twitter like quote me gloria steinem like i want to see someone serious <laughs> espousing these views and i said well the trouble is it's, it doesn't really work like that like some of these people who have these slightly nutty views are you know minor academics um but nonetheless the whole hr policies of places are being rewritten around them actually i would love it if there was one incredibly towering intellectual articulating the opposing view. But who have, who do you take most seriously? Who do you find most interesting? Because Tarnese Coates is a brilliant writer. You say that in the book. You know, whatever you think yeah. of what he's arguing, he argues it beautifully. Yeah. You know, in terms of reading people who remind me to think about other things, who, who, who let me know where I might be going wrong. You know, that's hard, Helen, because – and it's not that I'm not looking for that sort of thing. I actually – I work very hard to try to keep my mind open and to be open to views that don't sit right in my stomach because I don't want to hear it, but it might be true, such as people saying in general now, woke racism, that's cute, but the things going on from the right are much more important. I'm really open to that view. I've thought really hard about it, although I don't want to hear it because I wrote my book about what I wrote. But to tell you that this is the honest truth, and I'm not whining, in terms of my particular views, most 
of the black writers pretend that I don't exist. I'm sure that there's probably some Latin or Greek term for that in terms of rhetoric and argumentation. They pretend I don't exist. They don't mention me by name. Or if they do, like, for example, Kendi does this. He's writing about somebody I don't recognize who's some sort of self-hating racist who needs to look himself in the mirror. That I'm not open to. But in terms of a civic engagement with what I'm saying that doesn't caricature me, most of them pretend I don't that I'm not alive. So it's hard to it's hard to say. That's interesting. I I'll have to but think, I think harder that's something about that. that you, no, but I think that is something that is actually weirdly a, t- a tenet of how this works. In the sense of that debate and disagreement itself is is violence. Like I find this when I'm writing about gender, particularly about transgender issues, is that you, even and I think you've written about this in the book. You know that even hearing or allowing the other side is itself just appalling and absolute. so yeah. people are always trying to set you up in debates with somebody and they don't want to do the debate they don't believe in that as a as they don't believe in socratic dialogue they just don't there is no legitimacy in that and i've definitely seen the same thing you have done which is you want to look for the best criticisms and instead what you get is people going essentially oh like shake my head look at this Ugh. and you think right but what what, what do you actually what actually don't you like about it? Like, could you give me, could you give me a bit more? But it's like this assumption that everybody's going to read it and go, oh, like Helen Lewis is on her bullshit again. You're like, what is my bullshit? Tell me what my bullshit is. <laughs> but they won't say, yeah, I had an experience recently where somebody was trying to set me up in a formal debate about race issues, race issues. And it couldn't work because with the sorts of people they were asking, either the answer is no, like they won't debate me because that would be to platform what they see as noxious views or they don't have time. Or the ones who would bite, and it's interesting, they tilted young. They wanted the debate to be about things such as whether or not systemic racism exists, you know, as if I've ever denied that it did. But they only wanted to have the debate if it was set up so that they could preach their particular view. But they wouldn't allow debate topics that really would really would be the occasion for differing views except expressed in a civil manner. For them, it was clear that that simply didn't exist when it came to race. There was one job. Your job was to show that you're battling power differentials. And so, yeah, that that was there. And I'm not trying to demonize these people, and I'm not whining. I do plenty of debates, but that is the nature of the ideological environment here. Yeah. Well, uh, we're coming to the end, so let's move to a slightly more optimistic note, which your book does, which is really nice to, after having sort of sat through and gone, yes, Twitter is awful, oh God, <laughs> you come around and say, look, here are some really, a, a simple list, list of three things, of things that would really help black Americans. So I just want you to take me through them. So we've got the ending the war on drugs, teaching reading properly, and then what I kind of essentially summarise is finding good non-college routes to a stable, prosperous life, right? So just take us through them yeah. and how, wh- why those are your prescriptions for Black America. Those are the three, and you you said them beautifully, and they fit. The idea is to make lives better for Black people who need help, and that's especially men. The war on drugs ruins Black male lives to a, a, a grievous extent. If there were no war on drugs, if there were no such thing as a Black market, where you can make half of a living selling drugs on the street. If that simply didn't exist, the same men who understandably drift into that now, because there is a war on drugs, would get legal jobs. And if they got legal jobs, they would be home to help raise their sons so that their sons don't end up 
becoming them. They would forge middle class existences, which they would then be in a position to pass on in terms of you know, not to wealth, not to mention personal habits and experiences and connections to their children. These this would improve lives. Get rid of the war on drugs. Now, what kind of jobs are they going to get? Not McDonald's. The idea is for men like that to be shunted into vocational living. And that was terribly put into vocational schools where after two years, they can go out into the world and make a middle class existence doing extremely important and perfectly respectable things. The idea that those men should try to go to college for four years is absurd. Anybody before the GI Bill in 1946 would have thought that was bizarre. That would be the default expectation. Good vocational work. And then – Phonics. It sounds wonky, but a lot of people in bad neighborhoods and bad schools aren't taught to read properly. There's a whole debate among people who teach reading as to whether it's right to teach people how to sound out words as opposed to these other methods for teaching people how to read. That does not work for poor kids. If you grow up in this house, you learn how to read just by osmosis. If you don't grow up in this kind of house, then you need to be taught how to read carefully and the way that reading science has shown that it worked. So kids taught to read properly because if you don't read well, you don't like school. You're on your way to dropping out at 16. And then no war on drugs to distract you into a life that isn't going to be good for you because you're probably going to go to prison if you don't get killed. And then instead of that, good, solid, vocational education for people who are interested in four years of college. That alone, a generation of poor black Americans who grew up in that environment would be a generation prepared to face the world as it is and our race debate would turn upside down because black men would encounter the cops much less. I'm not sure how much we can reform the cops, but another solution is to keep black people away from the cops. Poverty puts you in contact with the cops. So what you do is you battle poverty. You increase people's level of education. This to me is very important. This to me is leftist ideas. This is what I think should go on. And the notion that all of that is conservative or backwards because it's not about changing how white people feel or turning the basic operations of the society upside down or forcing equity in a quantitative way. What I just described, that's one way of looking at things. I'm just proposing another one. And frankly, I think mine is better in that it has more of a chance of actually happening. And it's more honest. What I felt reading your book was that it's it's back to politics instead of self-help. And I feel yeah. like a lot of what I've read, and I think Robin D'Angelo's book is very much like that. It's, it's, it's a self-help book. It's like a diet book, but for your soul, right? It's about how you need to cut out the carbs of you know whatever it is and kind of cry <laughs> all your tears out. And I thought, I'm just not you know, that me gazing at my white navel is ultimately not helping anybody. <laughs> but 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 get back to get back to politics. And you're right about poverty and, and mental health being another obvious one, like particularly in America. You know, if you look at the people staggering around the streets of San Francisco, those are casualties of a broken healthcare system. Exactly. But John, I I enjoyed the book so much. For anybody who hasn't got a copy, I would recommend it. See how perfectly brief it is for people worried about taking on it is readable right all killer no filler thank you john thank you helen thank you so much thanks for listening to today's episode just a reminder you can support intelligence squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for intelligence squared premium for more information go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description thank you for your support what are you doing right now perhaps you're in the supermarket maybe you're on a run or on the commute but wherever you are in the world, 
and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.